Sometimes it seems like there's never been a more tumultuous, chaotic period in history than our lives today. But a single year in the late 18th century saw a number of influential transformations, even revolutions, that changed the trajectory of the Western world. By understanding how those events influence today's cultural landscape, Christians today can more effectively bear witness to God's truth in a post-Christian age. In his new book, Remaking the World, Andrew Wilson highlights seven major developments from the year 1776, explaining their relevance to social changes happening all around us today. And today, we're excited to share with you the complete first chapter of the audiobook read by the author. Let's get started. Chapter 1. Roots. The Presence of the Past. In 1776, at Wayanoke on the James River in Virginia, Mary Armistead married her fiancé, John. With all that was going on in America that year, it didn't make headlines. She was only 15 and John was nearly 30, but age gaps like that were fairly normal in the 13 colonies. In many ways, they were a classic example of rich Virginians at the time. Mary was the only daughter of wealthy parents and stood to inherit the beautiful family estate on the edge of Chesapeake Bay, while John had attended William and Mary College, shared a room with Thomas Jefferson, started practicing as a lawyer, and then served a stint in the Continental Army before being appointed as a judge. Together, they had eight children. Unusually, in an age of high infant mortality, all eight of them survived into adulthood. Although John became governor of Virginia, the chances are that most of us would never have heard of the family were it not for their sixth child, born in 1790, and also named John. He was a frail boy, wafer-thin and prone to bouts of diarrhoea with which he struggled his whole life. But he followed his father into law and local politics and gradually climbed through the ranks until on April the 4th, 1841, John Tyler became the 10th President of the United States. Four years later, he signed into law the annexation of Texas. Curiously, that is only the fourth most remarkable thing about him. The third is that he served the longest presidential term in history without being elected, stepping into the role after William Henry Harrison died just a month into his term. The second is that he got married in office, the first of only two presidents to do so after his first wife suffered a stroke and died in the White House. And the first, which sounds like it cannot possibly be true for someone who predated the metric system and whose parents were courting during the Battle of Lexington, is that as of 2022, one of his grandsons is still alive. Harrison Ruffin Tyler still lives in Charles County, Virginia, where his great-grandparents were married in 1776. He's well into his 90s. Born in 1928, just before the Jazz Age and the Roaring Twenties gave way to the Wall Street Crash and the Great Depression, Harrison was in elementary school when Hitler came to power, and secondary school when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Like any one of his generation, he's seen astonishing change, both technologically, televisions, atom bombs, the moon landing, the internet, and politically, World War II, Indian independence, the Chinese revolution, decolonization. But the social changes he's witnessed are even more dramatic. Just one year older than Martin Luther King, Harrison lived to see the election of Barack Obama and the emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement, despite having had a father who defended the Confederacy and a grandfather who owned 70 slaves. 
Harrison's father, Lion Gardner Tyler, lived through an even more seismic period of world history. He learned to read and write before the US Civil War in a state where people owned slaves but not light bulbs. China was in the midst of the Taiping Rebellion in which 30 million people died. Japan was a feudal society under the Shogun and the Samurai. Karl Marx was working on Das Kapital in the reading room of the British Museum and David Livingstone was exploring the Zambezi River. Charles Darwin published The Origin of Species when Lyon was six. The vast majority of the world's population worked on the land with an average life expectancy of 29. By the time Lyon died, the second industrial revolution had swept across the world, bringing electricity and indoor plumbing, telephones and movies, factories and skyscrapers, planes, trains and automobiles. Global life expectancy was above 40 and rising rapidly. Women in dozens of countries were going to university, gaining equality under the law, and voting. Lyon's father, John, would have struggled to cope with the world of his children, let alone his grandchildren. They, and we, would have struggled to live in his. John came into the world on a slave plantation, a few weeks after George Washington's first State of the Union and nine months into the French Revolution. He was a toddler when Beethoven was first commissioned to write music, and when Mary Wollstonecraft published A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. As John grew up, his days were continually punctuated by revolution, from the reign of terror in France, 1793-4, to the Latin American Wars of Independence, 1808-33, to the overthrow of nearly all European governments in 1848, not to mention the even more significant revolution which was emanating from the mines and mills of northern England, the speed of transformation was dizzying, as we can tell from the rapid evolution of the English language. Dozens of terms that we cannot imagine a world without, including industry, factory, scientist, journalism, nationality, railway, working class, middle class, statistics, capitalism, socialism and photograph, were coined during John's lifetime. The world in which John Tyler's parents were married in 1776 seems almost unimaginably different from ours. It feels more like a period drama or a theme park than a place where our ancestors actually lived, a land of duels and harpsichords where people took snuff and talked about providence and victuals, wearing wigs on their heads, frock coats on their backs and smallpox scars on their faces. Yet we are separated from it by only a couple of generations. The British Prime Minister H. H. Asquith was born during the life of Eliza Hamilton and yet lived to see the birth of the future Queen Elizabeth II. More astonishingly, a giant tortoise named Adwaita, who once belonged to Robert Clive of India, was born in the Seychelles before the Seven Years' War started in 1750 and died during the American occupation of Iraq in 2006. The past is closer than we think. And the legacy of that world lives on in our ideas and our institutions, our race relations and our sexual relations, our ambitions, our maps. Grandparents are like that. Their influence lingers on in the lives of their grandchildren, shaping their prospects and their values long after they are gone. The past is never dead, wrote Faulkner. It's not even past. Ours is a forgetful age, though. Lots of us do not remember the names of our great-grandparents. Perhaps it's unsurprising that we don't remember their world either. The rate of change in the last two centuries makes the past feel much further away than it actually is, which inclines us to fawn over the future and either patronise the past or ignore it altogether. 
Our technology does not help us here. We spend much of our lives on devices that are designed to need replacing every three years, accessing social media platforms that amplify the sense of a continuous present and an absent past. A huge number of well-educated people, for example, marked the end of 2016 by lamenting it, quite unironically, as the worst year ever, despite having marked the 100th anniversary of the Battle of the Somme just six months before. Mainstream media outlets are no different. The coronavirus pandemic of 2020 was repeatedly described as unprecedented in its impact, despite the Spanish flu, or for that matter, the Black Death. More amusingly, I think of the European correspondent for Reuters in the 1970s, who, apparently unaware of World War II, claimed that, quote, relations between Britain and Germany fell to an all-time low today over potato quotas. In an era of instant news, amnesia is baked in. And amnesia has consequences. One is confusion. The dizzying number of social changes in the Anglophone West from 2014 to 2017 alone, gay marriage, Brexit, Trump, Black Lives Matter, transgender rights, Antifa, Me Too, and so forth, left many people reeling, punch drunk, even fearful about what would happen next. For obvious reasons, periods of social upheaval are always disorienting, but they can be particularly distressing when we don't know our history. Everything feels unexpected, as if it's coming out of nowhere. Developments appear unconnected to the past, and indeed to each other. In the absence of a plausible historical narrative, people retreat into tribalism or conspiracy theories, or perhaps both, to help them make sense of the pace of change, because the deeper currents that shape society over decades and centuries, what James Davison Hunter calls the cultural climate as opposed to the weather, are invisible to them. The results can be painful. Another result of amnesia is arrogance, and it's available in both conservative and progressive flavours. In the progressive version, our current mores are self-evidently correct, which means that anyone who thought differently a hundred years ago, or even ten years ago, must have been either stupid or evil or both. In the conservative version, the only reasons for a person's success are their own ability and effort, which means that anyone who highlights the importance of historical privileges or oppression must be either jealous or lazy or both. Memory, in contrast, should generate humility. The acknowledgement of our past, with all its strengths and weaknesses, and the recognition that the reason we have the moral convictions we do, and the material advantages we do, is because of our ancestors. As James Baldwin relentlessly pointed out, we are our history. The big idea of this book is that 1776, more than any other year in the last millennium, is the year that made us who we are. We cannot understand ourselves without it. It was a year that witnessed seven transformations taking place. Globalization, the Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, the Great Enrichment, the American Revolution, the rise of post-Christianity, and the dawn of Romanticism, which have remade the world and profoundly influenced the way we think about God, life, the universe, and everything. These transformations, some call them revolutions, explain all kinds of apparently unrelated features of our culture. They reveal why we believe in human rights, free trade, liberal democracy, and religious pluralism. They ground our preference for authenticity over authority, choice over duty, and self-expression over self-denial. And they account for all kinds of phenomena that our great-grandparents would have found incomprehensible, from intersectionality to Bitcoin. 
1776 provides us with an origin story for the post-Christian West. That involves a combination of two claims. One relates to the world we live in today, and one to the world of two and a half centuries ago. The first claim, which will be the focus of chapter two, is that the most helpful way of identifying what is distinctive about our society relative to others past and present is that it is weirder, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic, ex-Christian, and romantic. Those seven features make us outliers. The vast majority of people in human history have not shared our views of work, family, government, religion, sex, identity, or morality, no matter how universal or self-evident we may think they are. We are the weirder ones. The second claim is that all seven of those things are true because of things that happened in 1776. Telling that story will occupy most of this book, but we can see it in outline by considering just ten prominent events from that year. In January, Thomas Paine released his pamphlet Common Sense in Philadelphia, arguing that the American colonies should pursue independence from British rule. It caused an immediate sensation and became one of the fastest-selling and most influential books in American history. In February, Edward Gibbon published the first volume of The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, which set new standards in history writing while also challenging the established church and providing a sceptical narrative of early Christianity that endures to this day. James Watt's steam engine, probably the single most important invention in industrial history, started running at the Bloomfield Colliery in Staffordshire on March the 8th. The very next day, Adam Smith released the foundational text of modern economics, an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. The most famous transformations of the year took place in the American summer, with the establishing of a nation that would play an increasingly dominant role in the next two centuries. The ratification of the Declaration of Independence, July 4th, the Battle of Long Island and the taking of Brooklyn by the British, August 27th, and the formal adoption of the name United States, September 9th. On the other side of the Atlantic, Captain James Cook was sailing southward in the Resolution in the last of his three voyages to the South Seas, the impact of which can still be felt throughout the Pacific Islands, New Zealand and Australia. Immanuel Kant was in Königsberg writing the outline for his Critique of Pure Reason, which would bring about a so-called Copernican revolution in philosophy. In Edinburgh, David Hume finally completed his Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, one of the greatest arguments against Christian theism ever written, before dying on August 25th. The autumn saw Friedrich Klinger write his play Sturm und Drang, Storm and Stress, which soon gave its name to the proto-romantic movement in German music and literature, just as Jean-Jacques Rousseau was writing his extraordinary reveries of a solitary walker. And in December, as Washington and his army were crossing the Delaware to surprise the British at Trenton, Benjamin Franklin arrived in Paris on a diplomatic mission to bring France into the war against Britain. It would eventually prove successful and lead ultimately to the American victory at Yorktown in 1781 and the collapse of the French Ancien Régime into bankruptcy and revolution in 1789. Between them, those ten events represent a series of transformations that inaugurated the weirder world. Some are so prominent that they have passed into everyday speech. People freely refer to the Industrial Revolution, the American Revolution, and the Enlightenment. Others are less recognized, but no less significant. You could argue that the long-term impact of globalization, 
or post-Christianity, or Romanticism, or the Great Enrichment, has been just as revolutionary as American independence, if not more so. As such, it's only fair to my American listeners to point out that much of this book is not about America at all. For obvious reasons, people who look back to 1776 as the start of their nation are inclined to see it as a year in which only one significant event occurred. In the immortal words of Ron Swanson, history began on July 4th, 1776. Everything before that was a mistake. But many of the momentous events that took place in this remarkable year had nothing to do with independence or war with Britain, and instead were occurring in French salons, Italian cafes, German theatres, Scottish pubs and English factories. It was a year in which the things that were done, battles, retreats, river crossings and so forth, were not nearly as important as the things that were said and written. Indeed, it is hard to think of a year in which more quotable, seminal remarks were made than this one. Some of them, of course, have passed into folklore in America because of their rhetorical power in the context of the Revolutionary War. Thomas Paine's These Are the Times That Try Men's Souls and Washington's Are These the Men With Which I Am to Defend America. Others are noteworthy for how well they articulated the implications of the Revolution. Lemuel Haynes for his fellow African-Americans, quote, Liberty is equally as precious to a black man as it is to a white one, and bondage equally as intolerable to the one as it is to the other. Or Abigail Adams for women, quote, In the new code of laws which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies. And Edmund Burke for Britain, quote, I can hardly believe from the tranquility of everything about me that we are a people who have just lost an empire, but it is so. John Wesley, eager to defend his own loyalty to the crown and his willingness to pay taxes, explained his radical commitment to simple living. Quote, I have a silver teaspoon at London and two at Bristol. This is all the place I have at present, and I shall not buy any more while so many round me lack bread. Other statements are famous because they encapsulate the spirit of an age, a spirit of confidence in human reason and potential that was almost tangible in the late 18th century and the aftershocks of which can still be felt today. We have it in our power to begin the world over again, declared Paine in one of the most audacious sentences ever written. Matthew Bolton, revealing his phalanx of steam machines to James Boswell, drew his optimism from the possibilities of technology. Quote, I sell here, sir, what all the world desires to have. Power. Jeremy Bentham took the opportunity to reframe human ethics. Quote, it is the greatest happiness of the greatest number that is the measure of right and wrong. And Adam Smith did the same with economics. Quote, he intends only his own gain, and he is in this, as in many other cases, led by an invisible hand to promote an end which was no part of his intention. Horace Walpole captured the ambiguity of the age of enlightenment and sentiment with his trademark wit. Quote, this world is a comedy to those that think, a tragedy to those that feel. James Madison, making adjustments to the Virginia Declaration of Rights, insisted that the final section include the phrase, all men are equally entitled to the free exercise of religion according to the dictates of conscience. Most influentially of all, the Declaration of Independence proclaimed it self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These ideas and the individuals, institutions, and inventions with which they are associated made us weirder. We are who we are 
because of them. That is the argument of chapters 3 to 9. The final two chapters address the question, so what? I am writing as a Christian pastor. I find history fascinating, and I am convinced that it can help us become wiser, humbler, and more loving neighbours. But my primary motive in writing this is to help the church thrive in a weirder world. What challenges and opportunities emerge from westernization or romanticism or industrialization? And what should we do about them? How should Christians act in an ex-Christian culture? What does faithful Christianity look like in the shadow of 1776? And here, I believe, we can draw a great deal of wisdom from an obvious source, faithful Christianity in 1776. How did believers in this turbulent and transformative era respond to what was happening around them? And what can we learn? As it happens, several strands within the contemporary church look back to 1776 as an especially formative year. It was a crucial period in the development of early Methodism. John Wesley secured and began fundraising for a site on which to build a new headquarters in London. John Fletcher, whom most people assumed would succeed Wesley as the next leader, caught tuberculosis, which prompted a complete rethink of how the movement would be led in the next generation. The American Revolution began a chain of events that would lead the Methodists to ordain their own ministers and finally separate from the Anglican Church. The need for new premises, new leadership, and a new denomination would prove catalytic for the rapid growth of Methodism in the following century. It was a landmark year in other denominations as well. American dissenters, as we've just seen, saw the crucial words free exercise of religion appear in the Virginia Declaration of Rights and subsequently in the First Amendment of the US Constitution. San Francisco was founded by Catholic missionaries. Former slave trader John Newton was working on the Olney Hymns, which would be published in 1779 and include his Amazing Grace and William Cooper's God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Lemuel Haynes wrote his anti-slavery manuscript Liberty Further Extended. The 15-year-old William Carey, who would grow up to become the father of modern missions and translate the Bible into six Indian languages, had the experience that led to his conversion. Marie Durand, the French Huguenot famous for scratching the word résister on the wall of her cell during an imprisonment that lasted 38 years, died at the age of 65. Calvinist vicar Augustus Toplady published Rock of Ages. Holy Trinity Church Clapham, later attended by members of the Clapham sect, including William Wilberforce, Granville Sharp and Hannah Moore, opened for worship. Most of these people would be widely known within Christian circles today and often outside them. Their institutions, hymns, missionary exploits and abolitionism are part of the mythology of evangelicalism. But we will also reflect on some individuals whose contributions are less recognised. Rebecca Prossen, the former slave who became a Moravian missionary. Johann Georg Harman, the first post-secular philosopher. Olauda Equiano, whose interesting narrative would become so important in the battle to end the slave trade. Though miles apart in their experiences and writings, each of these people have a great deal to teach us about living as Christians in a weirder world. A few years ago, I noticed how many of my favourite authors were writing during or immediately after World War II. It hadn't occurred to me before, and I wondered why it might be the case. There are probably some stylistic reasons. Their language is near enough to our own day not to sound arcane, and the crispness, simplicity, and visual quality of their prose was shaped by the advent of the cinema. Their works are also marked by a deep awareness of radical evil, which is hardly surprising given the times in which they lived. 
It gives their essays an urgency, and their poetry and fiction a cosmic drama that few writers before or since have achieved. Think of Big Brother and Room 101, Sauron and Saruman, Lord of the Flies, The White Witch, Animal Farm, and the role of sin and the devil in Graham Greene's novels. So it's fascinating how often their responses to radical evil involve an appeal to history. Sometimes this comes as a direct address to the reader, like James Baldwin's writing on race, Hannah Arendt on revolution, Leszek Kolakowski on communism, Isaiah Berlin on liberalism, or Dorothy Sayers's Creed or Chaos. T.S. Eliot and W.H. Auden do it through their numerous references and allusions. Green and Flannery O'Connor draw on their Catholicism. C.S. Lewis makes the point through essays on why we should read old books and by skewering chronological snobbery at every opportunity, from that hideous strength to the fates of Uncle Andrew and King Miraz in the Narnia stories. J.R.R. Tolkien does it through his medieval language and setting, his complex prehistories and his plot. Remember Sam on the edge of Mount Doom, reminiscing about the Shire and reminding Frodo of the old stories long before totalitarian evil seized the world. Simone Weil's greatest work is entitled L'Enracinement, usually translated The Need for Roots. Most powerfully of all, George Orwell creates worlds where nobody remembers the past, and where those in power, from the pigs in Animal Farm to the party in 1984, are free to manipulate it for their own purposes, throwing unwanted recollections down the memory hole. Quote, History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. All of these writers have witnessed the near collapse of the West in recent memory, and they knew the dangers of losing their history, as well as the importance of not allowing it. We don't have to look too hard for contemporary equivalents. History is the most contested of subject areas, now as then, because, as Orwell pointed out, those who control the past control the future. If you want to prevent 21st century Christians from preaching the gospel, pursuing social reform, and holding fast to orthodox faith, then history is your friend. Just cast 18th century missionaries as rapacious villains, 19th century reformers as patrician moralists, and the defense of biblical authority in the 20th century as a thinly disguised power play, and browbeaten believers will flee the public square like rabbits in the field when the fox arrives. Conversely, if you want to ensure that the divisions and injustices of the 18th century church continue into the present, then give people a triumphalist historical narrative of evangelistic breakthrough, social transformation, and spiritual revival, while carefully omitting the egregious racial, sexual, and political failures of their heroes. Paint goodies and baddies in lurid colour, and make all historical context a vague, indecipherable pastel grey. Rinse, wash, repeat. We are storytelling creatures, so narrating origin stories is inevitable. Indeed, since it is impossible to be theologically neutral when it comes to history, narrating theological origin stories is probably inevitable. The only question is whether those origin stories are true, good, and beautiful. Whether they reflect what really happened and why. Whether they nudge us towards courageous humility and love. Whether they recount the wondrous deeds of the Lord alongside the successes and failures of human beings. The arrogance of amnesia is always a threat, not least in periods of great technological and economic change, and so is the defeatism born of weary cynicism about flawed ancestors. So it is vital, as the Psalms and prophets remind us, to remember. Remember the deeds of our fathers and mothers, 
Remember the rock from which we were hewn and the quarry from which we were dug. It can help us understand why our world is the way it is, how it became Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic, ex-Christian and romantic, not least through the transformations of 1776, and how to love, live and thrive in it. That was chapter one of Remaking the World, How 1776 Created the Post-Christian West, written and read by Andrew Wilson. Pick up a print copy of the book for 30% off, or get the ebook or audiobook for 50% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. For more audio content like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend and leaving us a review. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.